It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome to KSL Plus, KSL TV's digital-only news show where we dive deep into some of the biggest stories of the day. I'm Matt Rascone, and this month is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We see Asian influence all around us, from music to food to Oscar-nominated movies. At the same time, anti-Asian rhetoric has peaked, it seems. So for many of us, higher than we've seen in our lifetimes and jumping to the forefront of our national conversations. You know, these were all stories, thankfully, that were long ago, being told to go back to China, being followed around Temple Square before, told to go back to Cambodia. I'm neither Chinese nor Cambodian. Um, I've been spit on before in the past. I've had drinks poured over me. You've probably heard over the last year about the rise in attacks on Asians in the U.S., especially older ones. In Utah, Carrie Shin Pace and a partner started the Asian Link Project. It pairs up members of the Asian American community who might be afraid to go out alone with chaperones. We just want to send them out and make them feel a little bit extra protected. For people who are not Asian, this may feel like a sudden rise in anti-Asian rhetoric brought on by COVID-19. But there's a history here. And to better understand what's happening now, we're taking a look back at the past. There is really a um, perception of Asians as a threat. This is Annie Isabel Fukushima, a professor in the Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Utah. We asked her about the history that has been building for generations around Asians and Asian Americans and how we can all live together. It doesn't mean that they necessarily are, but there is a perception of them as a threat. And this goes back to when we look at 1882 Chinese Exclusion Acts and the the discourse of the images and the words that emerge to make such laws go into existence or to pass. And so what we saw was that the emergence of um, images of how, um, for example, Chinese men were... Um, for example, um, a threat to white women. There were also images around um, Chinatowns as a threat to communities. And so you started to see all these images um, in media, in the newspapers, but also in the everyday, where people were perceiving, um, in particular, Chinese people as a threat, which would then eventually lead to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first comprehensive immigration act to exclude an entire group from entry into the United States. After the Chinese Exclusion Act, what the United States would see was a slew of anti-immigrant policies that would definitely show a prioritizing of migration from Europe um, and then a um, deprioritizing or exclusions from places such as Asia and Latin America. But there's also um, the perception of countries like China as an economic threat um, to the U.S. capitalism and global capitalism. And so these sort of old narratives of yellow peril discourse actually are reemerging even in the contemporary moment. And so um, this has been the backdrop of our 21st century. And that what we're seeing, though, is that during COVID-19 and global pandemic is that now you have um, this perception of disease as coming from a country. And so people now um, acting out um, violently against particular bodies. 
we're consuming all kinds of things from Thai to Vietnamese to Chinese, you name it, right? And so the question becomes, uh, how do we not do it in just this kind of superficial, consumptive way, um, but really deeply engage with different cultures um, in ways that are meaningful and also the histories? Do you know the history of these different groups that came to the United States? Um, and do we understand that, um, you know, those genealogies of why they're in a place like Utah? What brought them? What brought our Vietnamese, our Cambodian, our South Korean or Korean, um, our, um, as well as our Japanese or Chinese? The list goes on. There are so many Asian communities residing and living in Utah, some for multi-generations. And so what is that history that led those Asian groups to come to Utah, to a place like Utah and want to call it home? Um, and so how do we engage with our communities beyond consumption and actually understand the histories that shape us and them together? Utah has had its own role in the idea of Asians as a threat. We went out to Delta to visit the Topaz Museum, not far from the internment camp where 11,000 people, mostly U.S. citizens, were housed during World War II. We have a lot of people come and say, I never knew anything about this. And so we're glad we're here um, because our mission, of course, is to teach people about the history. More than 120,000 men, women, and children were removed from their homes along the West Coast during World War II and taken to 10 different camps across the country. It's just horrendous to watch uh, the, uh, the movement of the laws that inhibit Japanese and, and Chinese from doing well in this country making it so that they cannot become citizens, even if they are working, if they're in the military. They can't own property if they're not a citizen. Jane Beckwith was born and raised in Delta and is the president of the Topaz Museum Board. She walked us through the history and what we can take away to make things better today. That was what was going on when Pearl Harbor happened. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. And then people made this mistaken notion saying, look what they did to Pearl Harbor. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. When the they, people living in the United States had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. But that lie and that accusation um, kind of stuck. There's nothing we know other than our life here. I don't know where else I would go. And so people started punishing Japanese Americans. Nobody knew where we were going. For what Japan had done to Pearl Harbor. So that history is just, um, it's just large. And so um, because it was during wartime, it was very hard to be rational. Um, but that's, that's condensed about as close as I can get it. Right. right. And so this was one of the locations. Right. Of... There were, um, of course, people along the coast, uh, that's who was excluded, um, along Washington, Oregon, um, California, and a little bit of Arizona. And so if you were of Japanese ancestry, you had to go into uh, temporary holding places that they called assembly centers. And then while those were um, occupied, they started building 10 other camps. And... Department of Justice had camps for men. Uh, they picked up the leaders of the Japanese communities um, right after Pearl Harbor. So the Japanese people were bereft of their, um, of their leaders. And 
So, you know, it's just, it's very complicated and very um, um, rushed and not really thought through. Okay, don't spread out too far yet. Let me tell you about this, this room. So this was only part of a recreation hall. They've replaced the sheetrock up there on the sides, except for that part down there. Do you see that? That's the original sheetrock. So there were 10 camps. They, they left Topaz that. was one of those 10 camps. It held about 11,000 people over the course of, of the, um, the three years that the camp was open. 11,000, wow. People could leave the camp and go east. They just couldn't go back to California. And there was even a movement that said, now that we've got all the Japanese out, we're going to um, prevent them from coming back in. That's how really mean and... Um, how determined uh, those people were to continue to punish Japanese. Okay, I want to show you this picture right here. This is kind of interesting. Do you see these women? Mm -hmm. They have the wreaths in front of them. Do you know what they're being honored for? Making crosses. Because their sons died in World War II. So their sons were out fighting for the United States while their own mothers were locked up in Topaz. Is that kind of sad? Yeah. It was a hard time. These were not very good conditions, it sounds like. No, they were really primitive. And, I mean, when they moved them out of their house, uh, they put them in just any place they could find. And they put them in Santa Anita racetrack as well as Tanferan racetrack. So people were forced to live in horse stalls that had been occupied by horses just three months before. Hmm. That's just, that's cruel. That's just, um, I'm shocked and, and angry um, when I hear that. I mean, you know, if you look at Native Americans and you look at African Americans, I mean, we don't have a very good track record for being um, kind to people that are um, different nationalities. But, but this one was here in my backyard. The last Japanese internment camp closed in March 1946. In 1988, Congress issued a formal apology and passed the Civil Liberties Act, awarding $20,000 each to over 80,000 Japanese Americans who were still alive as reparations for their treatment. Some may argue today that those views are a thing of the past. We tend to lump all Asians together and point to high-achieving groups as evidence. But as Annie Isabel Fukushima points out, the past treatment of Asians in our society has shaped the way some families have assimilated into U.S. culture. When I think about how Asian migrant communities and Asian diasporas who, who have been living in the United States for multi-generations, um, I think that many of them have learned to survive um, by either assimilating in a particular way, which means participating in U.S. culture um, at the expense of their own cultures and hiding them, um, as well as, um, you know, participating in ways that might look like they are quiet. Um, because if you are too visible, then in the U.S., if you're a person of color or a person who 
was seen as too different than you're perceived of as dangerous. And so I do think that there is a stereotype of Asian migrant and Asian diasporas and the multi-generation Asians in the U.S. as being uh, seen as quiet, as being seen as submissive, um, as even being seen as model minorities. And all of these um, images perpetuate um, a particular kind of image of who is a good Asian and who is a bad one. Um, and so when you are a model minority, I still believe that kind of image perpetuates a uh, the yellow peril discourse, because oftentimes a model minority is seen as competitive, is seen as somebody who is um, really um, good at math. Um, you know, those are all those kinds of stereotypes that come out about how Asians are more successful in comparison to other um, groups. Um, but the truth is, is that Asian group as a group is such a wide category. And many uh, don't realize that there's actually disparities within the community. And so what we know is that there are many Asian communities who actually are experiencing hunger, who actually are experiencing um, economic, um, you know, destitution, although they may not take advantage of the social and welfare resources available to them. Um, and that they're experiencing undocumented status, even though we might perceive of um, the undocumented migrant as specifically Latinx. We know that's not true. There are undocumented migrants from Europe, from Canada, um, from Asia, from all over the world in the U.S. Um, but um, there is a particular image around that as well. And so when I think about this kind of perception of uh Asians in the U.S. and our relationships to them and how people um, may, on the one hand, um, hold them at a distance and not bring them close. It has a lot to do with the stereotypes that we have developed about Asian communities in the U.S. Yeah, so the model minority myth, and I say myth because it is not true for all, although some may participate in it, the model minority image um, for Asian communities emerged around the 1980s, um, in particular, when we started seeing images like Time magazine, putting forth images of Asian uh, communities as quote, whiz kids. And so we started to see this image of the Asian is really good at technology, good at math, good at sciences, um, emerging in the 1980s that put forth a particular picture of them as a good kind of um, model Asian group or model group. And so the per perception of the model minority is that the assumption is, is that this group is successful because they participate in U.S. capitalist economies, they participate in our educational system, and they are doing well. Um, but the truth is, is that it is a myth for many um, Asian communities, because we know that there is a difference uh, between the haves and the have-nots, um, and that uh, Asian communities experience huge wealth gaps within the category itself. And that actually, uh, what we know is that because of the image of Asian communities as a model minority, that there might be a perception that they there's a lot of pressure for them to do well. And so we know that things such as suicide ideation and suicidality are actually huge problems in Asian communities, but the difference is that there's a lot of silences around it, and they may not access resources because of their um, the stigma of mental health um, in Asian communities. And so um, there's, a, there's a complexity to being called a model minority. It assumes that you are doing well, that you are successful in comparison to other minoritized groups in the United States. Um, but the truth is, is that you know, racial experiences are so much more complex than that, than saying that one is either really good at something or not.
In Utah, we've been fortunate. There really hasn't been that overt violence like we've seen in other cities and states. But Annie says we're not immune to mistreatment. One of the things that I know, uh, being somebody who lives in Utah um, and connects with other Asian diasporas in the Utah context, is that what I've known um, and have heard in the past year is that there are folks who are deeply scared to live in Utah, which is one of the places that for many we see as a nice place to live. And for me, that was really sad to hear um, that some of my friends who um, are residing here feel that they are in danger when they are living in their own neighborhoods. Some of them have even experienced people telling them to go home, yelling at them um, in the streets, um, and experiencing other kinds of hostilities just because um, they are part of the Asian diaspora residing in Utah and living here and calling it home. And so, you know, I think that there is this perception uh, when we think about the violence and the anti-Asian hate that's happening um, and the racism that's happening as only happening in big cities that it oftentimes is we're looking and turning towards Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and seeing it in our media. And those get the most coverage and they're the most visible. But the hostilities are happening here in Utah as well. And it might just look a little bit different. It might look a little bit more polite. Um, and in some cases, it may even be overt. And we just don't have the language um, in our communities to talk about what's happening because we oftentimes don't. Uh, asking the question, where are you from, um, is a, a microaggression because it assumes foreignness. Um, saying that a person's English is so good um, assumes that they um, don't have the capacity and the aptitude to be multilingual, which um, actually, you know, I hear Utahns are pretty multilingual. And so um, I just I think that's another one that's super common that people don't even realize is a microaggression that actually perpetuates that you are not from here. Um, and that can also make a person feel like they don't belong. You know, one of the other ones that's really common is when somebody says something racist about Asians, and then they turn to their friend and they say, but I, I don't mean you. Right. I mean, those other Asians. Um, and, you know, I think that can be really hurtful because actually, even if you don't see them as that, uh, what you're saying is that you don't see them. Um, and so those are also part of the actions and statements um, that people might oftentimes enact that are racist. Um, and so there's a range of ways it happens. There's also the one that has um, happened to a lot of the, uh, you know, women of color that I know in my life that work in a range of fields in which they are told that they are not people of color. Um, and people see that as a, um, a compliment because it's saying you're closer to whiteness. But the truth is, is when I actually navigate the world, I cannot turn off the fact that when people look at me, they see anything but white. Um, and so that becomes one of the things where it's like, then you don't see my culture. You don't see that my culture, which I'm a Korean Mexican, um, is that my culture is very um, complex. Um, and so that's where um, I think that there's a lot of things that uh, one can uh, say and do in the everyday that they don't even notice that they're doing that can actually be really harmful to that person. And it is not necessarily about the single incidents. It's actually about the repetition of incidents, which is through many other bodies that constantly reinforce for the person that you don't belong, that you're not from here. Um, and that you are something different. 
I think there's also intention. So if you if you can grapple with why do you want to know this, you know, what will help you deeply connect with them on another level? Um, I think that they're not harmful if you really are genuinely not in a snapshot of like, we're just passing by, I barely know you. Um, and it just will make me comfortable to know whether you're not or you're from here or not. But I, I do think that there is something of if you are really genuinely wanting to get to know somebody, then yeah, inviting them to share connections with what they call home or, um, and all of that is really interesting. Um, but if you are just in a grocery store, or if you actually may not be really interacting with this person a ton, they're your Uber or Lyft driver, or um, they are the passenger, what have you. Um, I, I do think that one might want to think about then the kinds of connections they make then is like, well, if you don't have time to make deep connections, um, then are you asking the kinds of questions that are just trying to help you understand what race they are? Or do you genuinely just want to have um, a typical um, nonchalant conversation, which would you ask um, anyone else that was not in an Asian body, um, a Euro American body, would you ask them the same kinds of questions? Um, and if you are, then uh, what what is what are you trying to figure out? And so, you know, when people um, ask me questions of uh, what are you, I always like to understand why do they want to know? Like, what are the things that they're trying to um, unpack, which then gets at the uncomfortability of they're like, I just want to racially figure you out. You know, um, how we treat each other is one thing in the everyday. And you're right. I think that that's just one aspect of it. But there are structural and systemic decisions that we are also making that impact so many more people and that we have to also tackle those things and rethink how resources are distributed and also how communities are impacted and who's not accessing resources. Uh, What we know is that it is the working poor. It is racial communities who are more likely to experience uh, particular kinds of um, inequality economically as well. Um, it is migrant communities who are oftentimes denied uh, being accessed, re- you know, access to resources. Um, and so it is a lot of people who live on the margins. And actually what we're seeing uh, increasingly is that many of our communities are living on the margins um, as the, the gap between the have and have nots widens and has been drastically widening since the 1950s. We have just not been paying attention to it. If we don't start talking about it, then we actually can't start making decisions because then it continues to be in the realm of invisible and something we don't even think about. So I do think that in the context of Utah, it is so needed to have more conversations that move us into the uncomfortable because we are actually, um, you know, I think part of our um, lovely uh, community is that there is a politeness and that there is a niceness that, um, you know, pervades our life. Um, but what we then don't have is um, the conversation about things that make us uncomfortable that are difficult because it's just seen as rude and it's not part of our everyday. And while the Topaz Museum is working to reopen soon because of COVID, Jane hopes the message of the past can really help guide our future. Okay, well, I'm looking at these words behind you. Um, Yeah. Race, prejudice, war hysteria, failure, political leadership. What do you feel like? I mean, did did we learn our lesson I don't think so. Um, I think that we can we can fall into that um, prejudicial abyss very very easily. Um, these three things are incredibly important, but the one that is kind of missing there is that there was also a failure of people to stand up for people who were being misused, and um, 
I think that intercession um, could have prevented this because that's what happened in Hawaii. People in Hawaii, there were actually 40% of the population in Hawaii was of Japanese ancestry. That was about 157,000 people, but instead they only took about 2,000 people out of the Hawaiian islands and put them in camps, and that's because they interviewed them. They, they um, talked with them. They asked them who they wanted to have win the war, and that never happened on the mainland. It was just a mass, if you are of Japanese ancestry, you, you're going to have to leave. But, you know, there were people in um, Salt Lake, lots of Japanese uh, living in the Salt Lake area. There were even Japanese Americans living in Delta when the camp came, and they didn't have to go to camp. So that shows you, again, the, um, the extreme anger and prejudice that the people um, were feeling in California. Yeah. When you take people through this museum, what do you hope they walk away with? Well, I hope they have a knowledge of what happened, and I hope that they have, um, that their heart has been touched to say, that was wrong. Um, we emphasize the idea that um, kindness could have prevailed. Uh, none of these people were, uh, um, they were accused of crimes, but none of them were ever arrested for any kind of sabotage. So, um, uh, we just want other, we want people to be kinder to each other. So we just hope that we will open their minds just a little bit so that they would be willing to study a very complicated piece of history um, so that they would be willing to um, contemplate um, their behaviors um, a little bit better. Um, we've really tried to focus on kindness um, now when we're open um, Talking about kindness. Yeah. And it's, I, it's a basic. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and when you think about what's happening today, I mean, is that, is that the lesson for today? You know, I don't know how you touch someone's heart that is so angry that he would hurt someone or she would hurt someone. I don't know how we do that. Um, I, I think we just have to try the best we can and hope that it will... Um, kind of permeate the rest of the culture. I don't know, it's hard. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you again next week. 